Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Aaron Peterson, partner and global talent acquisition consultant with People Results. In each episode, Aaron interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson. Hi, Big Fish listeners. You're really in for a treat with episode 22. Rob Navarrete leads Willis Towers Watson's North America team, and he brings his corporate and RPO experience to bear there, wrapped up in a very diverse leader package. So you're going to have to listen to see what I mean by that, and you won't be disappointed. But before that, a quick reminder about our sponsor, the Professional Association for those who are serious about growing their TA careers, ATAP. I'm a huge fan, and I encourage you to look them up if you're not already a member at atapglobal.org. Members get access to an inclusive online community with webinars, a TA body of knowledge library, and a network like no other. It's really the only global member-driven not-for-profit representing all of talent acquisition and definitely worth joining. So now, on to Robert Navarrete of Willis Towers Watson. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 22 of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. Regular listeners know that I don't spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about myself and my own background. You can read that in my LinkedIn profile if you're really interested. But I'm departing from that for a quick second here to say that one of the greatest joys for me in leading big talent acquisition teams is when team members with whom I've worked and become leaders have become leaders themselves. People like Jutta Katterman, who I worked with in Germany, Stan Telford, also in the U.S. and Germany. Cindy Kataya, Melissa Mounts, Chris Gould. I mean, the list goes on and on of people that I'm so proud to call my former colleagues and former team members and who are now leading big organizations. Allison Cruz in episode 12 is one of those people as well. And so is my guest today. Robert Navarrete is the head of talent acquisition for Willis Towers Watson in North America. He's based in Toronto and was part of my Canada-based team when I led Aon Hewitt's RPO business globally. A warm welcome to you, Rob. Hi, Erin. Thank you very much. It's so nice to be here. I'm, I'm happy to be speaking with you. I am looking forward to our conversation. It's, it's been a minute since you and I worked together. I think that was about seven years ago or so, and a lot of water under the bridge since then. Rob, give my listeners, if you would, the 30,000-foot view of your background and how you arrived at Willis Towers Watson recently. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Well, first off, it's hard to imagine it's really been seven years, right? That's I know, so right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I guess it has been, right? Looking back, and you know, I want to say I really, really enjoyed my tenure at Aon Hewitt. You know, I had the opportunity to work with such incredible people, gain exposure to some innovative tools, had a tremendous amount of professional development and growth as an individual and as a leader, as you described earlier. Uh, and in my last role, I started getting more involved in RPO sales pitches, which I found very exciting. At the time, I was responsible for leading a large size sourcing team across North America, and I reported into a global leader who then reported into you. And I would remember listening to you speak to clients and prospective clients, and part of your pitch was really around the fact that your global leadership team had all been heads of TA in the past. Uh, and for me, 
I grew up at Aon Hewitt, right? I started as a, an executive recruiter, moved into you know, team lead, manager, et cetera type roles, uh, but I had never been a head of TA, fully accountable for the end-to-end process. So I really saw that as my next step. But even my manager at Aon Hewitt was not the head of TA, that was you. And so I thought to myself, what would be my next strategic step? And then I was contacted by a search firm who presented a really exciting opportunity to me. uh, And it was for a company that was in the analytics space. Interestingly enough, they had a hybrid recruitment solution. So they had in-house recruitment and they also had RPO. So that really excited me because I could keep my feet wet uh, in the RPO space and leverage the experience I had gained working at Aon Hewitt. It was also for a company that was not well known, right? So I had worked for some really big brands in Canada and and the US, but this one, if I mentioned it to you, you would never have heard of it. And so I saw it as a really great opportunity because to go in as the head of TA and be fully responsible for the strategy, the marketing, the technology, the tools, the team, et cetera, uh, was a challenge I think that was right for me at that time. And so I decided to take that leap. I thought that would be a great next step to truly become a head of TA. And I really enjoyed that. A big difference, though, in my role at Aon Hewitt, I was responsible for up to almost 18,000 hires per year. And this new company, we would have between 500 to 1,000. So much smaller size, the accountability was much greater. Yeah, and so then after that, I had a really great time at Amia, by the way, two great years. I was tapped on the shoulder again to join another company called Capital One. Strong brand, right? So certainly felt like another comfort zone financial services. This is, this is where I spent most of my career. It was a massive recruitment function as well. They must have had about 400 recruiting professionals. You know, I had a really, really great leader. Uh, we had a strong connection and I enjoyed it, but it was a bit different in the sense that, you know, I was one of many as opposed to being the head of TA. And so mm-hmm. that was very different for me, right? Because, you know, I was responsible for the Canada market and I would have, you know, a president coming to me looking for certain changes, ideas, et cetera. He was always telling me my team was too big, but it didn't necessarily align with the global function, right? Or the global strategy. And so myself in that role, I didn't have the ability to make many changes. So uh, I decided I probably should, should look for a role where I felt I would be more comfortable in as the head of TA. And so I moved to the technology space, which is where I worked at SAS. That was for Canada and Latin America, right? Correct, correct. An interesting mix. Yes, <laughs> an interesting <laughs> yeah. mix, absolutely. But uh, it was one I was excited about for a few reasons, right? Again, thinking back to my role at Aon was Canada and the US. And so I wanted that larger size demographic or region. I'm also Latin American myself, so I speak Spanish fluently. And so the ability to use my language in a professional role was really exciting for me. It just kind of checked all the boxes of what I wanted to do and and, and work on. And so I ended up joining uh, SAS. And again, a really, really great time. I spent about four years there, you know, had the ability to build some great relationships, introduce some great ideas, some good technology, and then have different strategies, essentially. So we didn't continue RPO throughout my four years there. So the first couple of years I had RPO, and then essentially I had to bring it back in-house because the business needs were changing, part of which the, the demand for hiring just wasn't there anymore. We just weren't hiring many people. And so RPO just did no, no longer made sense for this particular business, right? And so I built a, a team in-house and then wrapped that up. And, and then I ended up joining Willis Towers Watson, uh, which was a, a really, really exciting opportunity for me. 
which is where I'm right. today. And we're going to talk about all that. Uh, and for those of you who don't know what Wills Towers Watson is, it's a leading global advisory, broking, and solutions company. It's very similar to Aon, where uh, Rob and I worked together. Give us an idea of the size and scope of your responsibilities as the head of TA. Going back to drawing parallels to my role at Aon Hewitt, it's a large size team, right? So uh, I'm accountable for uh, end-to-end recruitment uh, for all business units. We have essentially four large segments across North America, so Canada and the U.S., and we also have a small uh, business in Bermuda and Cayman Island, which also falls under my remit. We do approximately 4,500 hires per year. I have three teams, uh, experienced hires, high volume, and then of course campus. And in a normal year, we are doing 4,500 hires and my team flexes between 30 full time uh, and then I would scale up to almost 50 if I include the seasonal hiring temp recruiters that uh, we bring on board to help us through that season. In terms of where we're located, we are across North America, Canada and the US, and over 90% of my workforce is working from home. And this is pre-COVID, of course. In terms of those 4,500 hires, has that been impacted at all recently by COVID or other changes? Yes, yes, absolutely it has. So approximately 2,500 of those 4,500 hires have been impacted, right? So like many companies, our hiring demand has decreased about 80% uh, overall on the experience side. Uh, And then campus, well, I mean, the season's about to pick up next month. So we're in the process of planning for that, working with the leaders to understanding what our hiring forecast. We also have another area of our business, which is still hiring. So our seasonal hiring, these are essential workers. And so we plan to hire another couple of thousand there. You mentioned campus recruiting. I'm interested to know what kind of messaging are you using at this point with regard to entry-level hires and how to talk about them, about the opportunities at Willis Towers Watson, especially those all-important actuaries. In all honesty, a lot of that is still in development mode, right? Because we're still trying to understand what our hiring demand is. But for those that joined, you know, this year during this whole COVID thing, you know, we have been extremely flexible with how we are bringing people on board, right? Essentially, most of our colleagues are now all virtual. And depending on individual circumstances, you know, we've been able to bring them on board using our IT equipment or enabling them to be able to use their own equipment as well. There were some impacts in terms of start dates, as an example, because uh, not everyone is immediately ready to bring people on board virtually. So we did have to push some start dates back. But thankfully, we didn't have to end up canceling any positions. And we did have messaging around what we were doing to keep colleagues the space that were required to come into the office. But as I said, the majority of our folks are all virtual. But let's go back to you taking on the role back in January. I mean, let's be honest, speaking, you know, just from my personal experience, it's really hard to join a company at the top TA leader level and inherit a team that you didn't have a hand in hiring. So I know you've done it a few times in your career. I have too. What's been the hardest part of that for you? Yeah, you're right. It is absolutely can be a challenge. And I think the biggest challenge up front is knowing how to navigate through the company, right? At a place where you may not even know how to find a pen if you needed one. So that first 90 days of observing and building relationships is so critical, right? You want to know what your sandbox looks like, you know, why we've come up with some decisions, why we're leveraging certain partners, et cetera, where are those relationships coming from before you come in and make any severe changes, especially 
if you were hired with an intention to really be a transformational leader. So that is, I would say, the hardest part of, of, of joining a, a new company. The easiest, I would say, is more around, um, you know, having established credibility under your belt, right? So having, you know, you mentioned joined a new company and, and being able to implement some change. There's a lot of history and proven success that comes with that. And so that is, I think, has been an easier thing to do rather than, you know, coming and, and being promoted through the ranks where your peers, even though they recognize you as your leader, they do still see you as a peer to them. Right. So there's a little bit more of a credibility factor that comes in when you're an established leader coming in. Oh, that's an interesting perspective. So sort of like coming in as a consultant, people listen to you more than if you're internal, just because it's an outside voice. Maybe you're the person who they they don't know yet. They're kind of looking to you for some new outside perspective. Let's talk about another difference that you bring. You're Canadian. And coming from that cultural context, do you see differences when dealing with global colleagues? I mean, you're in charge of North America, so that's not the United States of North America. It's actually three different really big countries. And I'm just curious about whether you personally have experienced any, I don't know, let's call it unconscious bias during your career. Do do people have a preconceived notion of what a Canadian leader will be like? So I would say yes, of course. I mean, uh, to deny that I think would just be wrong. But I think for the most part, many of us by now have received a level of cross-cultural training and have adapted and learned to work well with each other. So in my current environment, you know, I partner very closely with my other regional leaders, but also we have offshore capabilities. So a lot of our operational activities, administrative activities are conducted through our recruitment colleagues in Manila. And I've always been impressed by the service level and experience that they deliver. And I say this both as a a customer, but also as a candidate not long ago, right? Because we leveraged the offshore team quite a bit during the candidate experience. And in terms of unconscious bias, again, I'd say, uh, sadly, I think many of us at some point in our career have experienced it. And as a Canadian, I think people generally see Canadians as nice people, right? So on some level that can be an advantageous bias. Now, as a member of the LGBT plus community, Sometimes it's been the other the other way, which is mm-hmm. less positive. Generally, you know, people perceive Canadians are, are going to be really nice and perhaps, you know, they test that to a point where they think that they're going to be able to influence uh, or have a stronger voice. And so for me, learning as a professional and uh, taking on larger geographies, I've adapted my style to part of that cross-cultural awareness training sure. to be able to flex and work in other markets so that you continue to have that level of influence. What an interesting answer. I'm so glad I asked that. Guess what I hear from you is that it's 360. We, we all are learning. We're all kind of perceiving, receiving, giving uh, interactions with other people and, and we're not there yet. All right. Well, let's talk RPO. Um, when we worked together, there was a very challenging client we were serving in Toronto, but a great client and a long-term client. And on my trips to visit the team there, I was always impressed with how people really looked up to you, Rob, and how progressive and productive that team was. And I'm just curious, like now as a corporate TA leader with that RPO experience, not just the Aon Hewitt, but also since then, you know, what's your view of the relative value and risks of partnering with an outsourcer? And I guess maybe in particular, is there anything that the Rob of 2020 would advise the Rob of 2010 to do differently when you look back on RPO? Yeah, sure. So thanks for the question. And thanks for the compliment as well. It it actually means a whole lot to me coming from you, Erin. I think a good RPO is a, a strategic partner and they need to have a very strong relationship with the business. 
But it's not just about relationships. This means understanding the business in order to be able to work effectively. Recruitment in general has evolved over the years. You know, we talk about having a seat at the table. Sometimes that's a challenge for in-house recruitment leaders, never mind RPO leaders. And that's a mistake, an unfortunate one. It's such a critical strategic function with a big responsibility, hiring talent and, and future leaders who will drive the business forward. An RPO should be able to solve for many things that lean recruitment teams cannot. An RPO can leverage economies of scale to introduce very innovative tools, technology, insights, reporting that in-house teams can only dream of. I remember when we were working at Aon Hewitt, we were implementing great CRM tools, digital interviewing. We had an incredible recruitment management tool. And yeah. sourcing. Sourcing like no and other sourcing. organization was doing it. Yeah, I agree. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, I think the risk there is that if, if they're not perceived or accepted as a strategic partner with a seat at the table, then all of those tools go to waste, right? You're not fully utilizing. You're not optimizing the partnership. And, and that's, that's unfortunate. And then it would be difficult to pivot at the 11th hour, right? Because they don't have that strong strategic partnership. But at the same time too, RPO can be a very expensive solution. So it's important to know when to use them and when not to. If I think back to what I would tell myself 10 years ago about partnering with an organization, it's that you need to really, you know, again, build that relationship really, really close. And our relationship at the time with our clients evolved as well. We had a very long-standing partnership, a very long contract, and uh, over the years, we ended up having a seat at the table. And that's when we started to see process optimization. We saw an optimal experience, uh, and I think that's what's really important. Recruiter talent. So people you add to your team. I mean, I know there's not a lot of that going on right now, but you know, when you have in the past and when you will in the future, What would you say are your top three criteria when you go to the market and look for a a great recruiter to join your team? Yeah, sure. So certainly I expect a recruiter to be able to recruit and source, right? That should be a given. And outside of that, though, there are three things that I'd look at in particular. Number one is creativity, right? So, you know, there are various technology tools that, you know, are leaders in this space, right? One that perhaps has them enough. But what happens when this technology fails us? You know, how creative are we? How distinctive can we be from the competition? Is this your only source, the tool that a recruiter can use to find talent? I hope that it isn't. And sometimes that means going back to some traditional methods. So I want to find an ideal recruiter that is able to leverage the technology we have, but then also, you know, be creative. That's very important to me. The other piece is perseverance. And this is something, you know, I I, I continued on from my days at Aon Hewitt because, you know, I think, again, what differentiates you is the fact that you're willing to go the extra mile. Uh, I know a lot of uh, recruitment uh, functions will say they have kind of like a three-attempt process wherein they'll make an attempt to contact candidates three times and then they'll move on. And I can understand that in some environments, time management is a, a concern, right, because you have so many responsibilities. But for individuals who are willing to be creative and perseverant and make that fourth or fifth or even seventh attempt, I think that's fantastic. And, and so I really love to have that in, in a top recruiter. And the other piece is an individual who really recognizes that we're in an experiential environment nowadays, right? And so 
we've talked a little bit about candidate experience, but I also think the hiring manager experience is, is very important too. And so while you're delivering that excellent candidate experience, I also want to be able to deliver that same type of approach to hiring managers. It's not just about passing resumes and, you know, giving a couple of recommendations, but also walking them through, telling them a little bit about what the market looks like, leveraging information to give them a better sense of what the talent supply chain looks like and being able to add diversity of thoughts, diversity of uh, the candidate into the mix. And so having that consultative approach and walking through hiring managers to challenge them to look more openly is something that I look for in recruiters. Creativity, perseverance, then recognition of the experiential side of things. What I heard is both for the hiring manager and the candidate. Completely agree. And on that last point, empathy for me is the word that comes to mind. You know, if, I, if I'm a person yeah. with empathy or if I cultivate empathy by trying to put myself in the shoes of my hiring manager or my candidate or candidates, multiple, you know, that I'm presenting, the to-do list gets pretty clear. And most of it has to do with communication. So I would definitely agree with those three. So now, if you listen to other Big Fish podcasts, you know that I always ask for a big mistake, something you're willing to share that you've learned a lot from in the past, ideally something that would help future TA leaders avoid a pitfall. So what's yours, Rob? Be specific if you can. <laughs> yeah, great question. <laughs> I know <laughs> it's to tough. everyone who's willing to... Yeah, <laughs> no, but, I, I, but we all do it. Absolutely. You know, we all do it, but it's interesting. In our business, I don't really see too many things as mistakes. I see them as learning opportunities. And I, it's not as if um, I'm having to make a critical decision while having someone on an operating table where my decision could lead to a fatal outcome, right? I, I design, build, deliver strategies to ultimately achieve an outcome. And generally, when I go into the, one of those things, I, I come up with two or three different options, right? And I really think about it, uh, and I weigh out the pros and cons. And even as I'm implementing the strategy, you know, because we're so data-driven and looking at each stage of our funnel, you know, I will make strategic decisions along the way that help to mitigate some of the impact of some of those mistakes. But ultimately, the outcome is, has been a positive. I've been very fortunate in that regard. This doesn't mean that I might say as a postmortem that maybe I should have tried something differently. Maybe it might have gotten it faster, cheaper, maybe even better, but the outcome was still okay. You know, I do want to be able to give you something. And I think about what would I have done differently going back earlier on, maybe. I might say not feeling more comfortable in my own skin earlier in my career might have been a mistake for me. But at the same time, too, I wasn't ready. And I think that's very important, too. You know, I am in a place today at Willis Towers Watson where I feel like I can be my authentic self. I truly feel comfortable. I feel supported. I can be me. I can share my ideas. I can have strong opinions, loosely held, of course. But because I'm not worried about having to be someone else, uh, I believe that I am more successful. And so I think to myself, had I been able to do that earlier in my career, maybe I would be somewhere else today. But I'm also very, very happy at the same time, too, right? But I think, you know, that is really a differentiator for me. It's a different time. 2020, you know, it, it, it's a very different time for someone like myself. And I had a really, really great experience throughout my career. Uh, I really enjoyed everything. But growing up myself in a Latin American uh, family who immigrated to Canada, you know, you grow up with this mindset of um, you need to have the shield, 
because not everyone can accept you for being different. And so, you know, I feel like I no longer need to wear that shield, right? So if I didn't have to wear that shield growing up, maybe things would be different. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's insightful. And, you know, it's interesting that you're, you're still a young man, but it, I guess what I'm hearing is that when you were younger, it just, you just weren't ready to be accepting of all that you bring to the marketplace and to your, your leadership style. But that's so true of everyone, right? I mean, we, we don't know when we're younger or when we're just starting out, you know, really what will be accepted and what we can be successful at and what people will expect of us. And boy, a little bit of experience, a few battle scars, really, it, it helps, doesn't it? And, and hurts in some cases because <laughs> you learn. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing somewhere along the way, you've had some mentors who've kind of helped you arrive at that. Can you tell us about one in particular and what you learned from them? Yeah, absolutely. I've been blessed. I have been able to work with some really, really great, inspiring leaders and colleagues at various levels. And Erin, I would consider you to be one of them. Absolutely. Oh, um, thank you. You know, we had a... <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and there was, uh, you know, if I had to name one in particular, there was, and, and maybe you can figure it out, but there was someone within our recruitment process outsourcing organization who I really looked up to and learned a lot from and continue to have a relationship with this individual. A very, very strong business savvy uh, and really, really great relationships with the client and ability to leverage data, which being an RPO, it's very driven by data, which I'm able to leverage today, but also uh, if I haven't mentioned already, her level of pragmatism is also very, very good. Mm-hmm. And so for her, you know, she helped me to understand essentially how to run a business, right? And so growing up in an RPO environment, and if you're in a leadership position, sometimes you get exposure to a level of P&L and, and revenue, et cetera. Uh, and so I was able to learn a lot from this individual that I'm now able to apply a lot of that into how I go into making strategic decisions today, even though my role is not revenue generating, right? So yeah, I really look right. to her for that. That's awesome. But we can name names here. It's okay. <laughs> I would have said that that, that that would be Angie Fern. I knew it. Oh, she is a star. That's for <laughs> sure. I'm guessing you've kept in touch with her as well. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I, I completely agree. What a great, great leader and a fine human being too. So, I mean, that's all part of it, right? Our, our mentors don't just know stuff, they know people. Right. And she definitely does. So thanks for mentioning that. A great example. Okay. So when somebody else comes to you for mentoring advice, especially somebody who maybe wants to be a talent acquisition leader, what, what's your best advice for them? Yeah, you know, I would say it's really important nowadays, more than ever, to really be open, to be curious. And I said earlier, it's good to have strong opinions, but they need to be loosely held and be open to listening to others. Um, That's really, really important. And it's okay to be distinctive. In fact, it's probably better to be distinctive. As I mentioned earlier on, you know, in my career, um, not being fully open with myself in terms of being a member of the LGBT plus community, I felt like I had to act, right? And it's not that I wasn't being authentic and I wasn't being true to myself, but at the same time too, I was also operating in a way that I thought people wanted me to operate, right? I couldn't necessarily share all of my ideas per se because of, of out of fear that maybe they would be rejected because they're coming from a different diversity of thought perspective. And so I think nowadays it's really important to recognize that how 
the, the value that that diversity of thought brings to the table um, and how we can actually benefit a company in many different ways. Very young in our, in our teenage years and everyone's trying to be like everyone else to be accepted. Nowadays, as a profession, you know, being distinctive actually is quite good, right? Um, it makes you stand out. It adds something, it complements a business and a team to be able to perform better. Okay, so I love that, that advice. So, so bring your whole self and figure out what distinguishes you from others so that you can really bring something new and interesting to the party. Is that right? That's exactly right. I appreciate your reference to where we are today versus where we were in the past. I feel like we still have a long way to go. But do you, do you think that we really are in a better place today in terms of the LBGTQ community being able to kind of show up as they are and actually talk about that openly at work in order to make business better? I think it depends, right? Uh, in some cases, yes, absolutely. You know, I, I've been blessed in, in many of my companies, even if I wasn't necessarily uh, public about my particular situation. I've, I've never really felt like um, I was not being accepted, per se. While I kept that shield up, it was just a form of a safety net, but it wasn't because necessarily people were approaching me negatively. But I also worked in some environments that were, you know, uh, not diverse at all. It was very, you know, white, middle-aged men focused. And so on occasion, of course, there may have been some moments wherein I thought, oh, maybe things would have been a little bit differently if I was a little bit different, uh, but nothing was very, very severe. Uh, and it's unfortunate. I mean, anyone who's reading the newspapers today will know that, you know, there's so much social injustice that still goes on today. And that's really unfortunate. But the good thing is that people are talking about it now and people are listening and people are willing to help. I think for the most part, people are generally good. And for myself, you know, I know that in the last year or so, uh, people have been reaching out to me directly and supporting me, you know, as I you know, may have made comments or done things for my community that have helped to inspire others that are looking to do something similar as well. And so uh, I think that Things have changed a little bit, but we still have a long way to go. I'm glad to hear that optimism from your perspective. And uh, I feel like we do have a long way to go still. But, but I'm so glad to hear that, you know, we've kind of arrived at this place where there is more freedom to be who we are. And I, I can only hope 2021, 2022, three, four, five, up to, <laughs> you know, forever. We just all kind of get to a better place in terms of accepting others' ideas and situations. So that's my hope. Rob, we're almost out of time, but is there anything else you'd like future recruiting leaders to know about what it's really like to stand in your shoes? Yeah, um, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, while myself and others, you know, we've probably built recruitment functions from scratch once or, or maybe some of us have done it multiple times and we feel pretty comfortable that we've done this before it should work successfully again and and, and if it does that's great but i think we also need to recognize that uh, we don't know everything right uh, and that's why it's important to again to listen to adapt to be curious and to leverage the strengths of others and even some of those folks may not have recruitment experience but they bring an interesting perspective that maybe we have been ignoring for some time um, so embracing that diversity of thought is really important and that's something i try to do myself um, on a regular basis with my team uh, i look for curiosity i look to be challenged and i think feedback is a gift i feel over my you know tenure 
I've had some really great experiences. I've had some lessons learned, but they wouldn't be lessons learned unless it gave me some thought-provoking moments that allowed me to become a better TA leader today. Feedback is a gift indeed. Sometimes it's hard, but it usually has great returns. So I will agree with that. And I also love your reference to humility and curiosity. I mean, that's, that's just basically with the speed of change, I feel like we can't not be humble and curious pretty much all the time. So, all right. Well, Rob, thank you so much for this great conversation, bunch of wisdom and great insights. So uh, again, thank you and all the best to you in all of the upcoming changes and uh, look forward to continuing to keep in touch with you and seeing how you grow in your career. Well, thank you very much, Erin. It was really a true pleasure to be part of this discussion today. I really enjoyed it and I look forward to keeping in touch. All right. We'll talk with you soon. Thank you. You too. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ERE.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Aaron directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com.